This is Multinew Media. Hi there, everybody. Chase Rads here. Episode 109 of Multinew Media. And with me today is a returning guest of the show, a friend of the show, and more importantly, honestly to me, a friend of mine, Garrett Albritton. How are you today, sir? I am doing well. How are you today? Um, good, good. Listen, I know that uh, we just talked before recording here. You have a meeting coming up, so we're going to keep this fairly, you know, we're, we're not going to keep it short, but it'll be it'll be time sensitive. Let's put it that way to use a incorrect term in a way we want it to be used. Works for me. Works for you. All right. So what we're here to talk about today with everyone is something that I, I know you to be very passionate about. And that is storytelling with data. What just just kind of ease my mind here if I'm hearing this for the first time. What's your background with this idea, and what's your interest in this idea? Well, coming at it from the perspective of story, uh, I have always considered myself a storyteller. I enjoy crafting them. I enjoy delivering them. I enjoy experiencing them with other people or on my own. Uh, any, any type of story really, I get, I really get wrapped into and enthralled with. So, uh, on the data side of things, uh, I've actually been working in data for many, many, many years now, uh, in mostly operations and logistics type data for, uh, Full Sail University. And about five years ago now, I dove in headlong into the world and made uh, made my relationship with data official by completing <laughs> a master's degree in business intelligence. And since then, I've really made uh, you know I've made data the thing that I focus on very very heavily in my day to day job here at Full Sail, and I use it to help drive the initiatives that we do in my department as well as other departments, and to help people better understand what's going on with their initiatives or what's going on with their events or what's going on with how they connect from one department to another department or individual to individual using data to drive that understanding. And the storytelling aspect blends with that very, very nicely because data is very often an extremely complex thing. And story, uh, as Jean-Luc Godard once told us, is used to help us make sense of a complex reality. So I see data storytelling as the way to help people understand the complexities of data and to help them understand how to relate to it in a way that it'll make sense to them and not just be a whole bunch of statistics and numbers and percentages that they really don't know what to do with. What does that look like? Does that come across in... Um, is this audio storytelling, visual storytelling, a combination of all, um, are we gamifying data in any way? How does your take on storytelling with data, how does that, how does that manifest? Well, in whatever way the data requests it to manifest, I, uh, I really just listen to what the data is telling me and I, I listen to what it wants to share and the story within it and then the way it's ultimately delivered, the way the story is ultimately told really depends on what story is there first off 
And secondly, who is the audience that I'm presenting that story to? Sometimes it may manifest in the form of an Excel spreadsheet because that's the most appropriate way to tell the story. Other times it may manifest in the form of a presentation with a lot of rich visuals and uh, charts, graphs, all types of data visualizations. Sometimes it may take the form of an infographic. Sometimes it may take the form of just sitting down and having a simple conversation about the data with the person that I'm working with. So it's, it's really, uh, there's, there's not one quick answer to it, unfortunately. It's, it's really all about what is necessary for the type of data and for what the audience is looking for. Would you say that more of it lies in what the audience is looking for or more of it lies in the, the data, which has a little bit more wiggle room in terms of creating a story? Well, anytime you're creating a story, you always want to make sure that you pay close attention to the audience, no matter what story it is, whether we're talking about data storytelling or whether we're talking about uh, crafting a podcast like you do or whether we're creating a film. You always need to keep the audience in mind very, very strongly and at the forefront of what you're doing because if you don't deliver your content to them in a way that's meaningful to them, that they will engage with, then you're going to lose them. Right. And then the point of the story is lost. So really for me, the audience almost weighs a little bit more heavy than, than what the, the data tells me to do with the story sometimes because I need to make sure that they connect with it. And once I've connected them with it, then I can really get into the direction of what the data is telling me to do with the story. Uh, okay. So if you've got a visual learner, you know, if you had a boss that were a visual learner, um, you're probably going to lean more towards video and infographics and those types of things, even yeah. if it's a little more work to get the data there. Yeah. And, you know, it's with, with infographics, I have found over the last four or five years that people respond really, really well to that format. So I will very often deliver data the first time in the form of an infographic mm. because it's quick and easy to understand. And you can pack a lot of stuff into that one branded content container yeah, well, uh, that allows you to deliver lots of elements of diff different elements of the story in different ways. So if I, if I don't know my audience really, really well or I've got a mixed audience, an infographic allows me to deliver with written content, with some statistics and numbers, with some visualizations – and, you know, maybe with something fun or something anecdotal, that way I can connect with a lot of different people in that one pass. In a procedural sense, um, I want to, I want to ask, what's your workflow for that? Uh, what does it look like? Because, you know, when we talk about creating infographics, are you sitting down in Photoshop or Illustrator and really going from scratch or are you using templates that exist or other software, web tools? What does the workflow look like for, for you know for those of us who are used to the Excel side of, of storytelling and of the number crunching? What does the workflow look like of, of creating the story? Well, once I've got the data, because the workflow always starts with the whole process of gathering the data. Uh, once I've got the data and I've got it cleaned and I understand what story it's trying to tell me, then I will sit down with usually uh, – I'll start with Keynote and Adobe Illustrator. 
because both of those are really easy to use tools. They're very powerful. They're very quick. And I will uh, often use pre-made elements that are available on the internet for free. Uh, and I'll just pull them together and start experimenting. So more often than not, whenever I sit down with the blank slate, this is where the artistry comes in. I don't necessarily know what it's going to look like in the end right? or have some idea of what it's going to look like in the end. I just start putting the pieces together and letting the story sort of flow out of me on the page. And then from there, as it starts to take form, I'll get a better idea of where I want to go with it and I start refining it. So there is a lot of artistry to this. You know, it, it is a science for sure, data science, as we all no, but there is definitely an artistic side to it as well with understanding how to let that science translate into the thing that people are going to understand. So I know that's a very broad, out there, not very specific, do this, this, and this procedural step thing, but it's, it's honestly a little hard to describe. I just – I sit down and I start doing it. Yeah, that that's that's really interesting to me. And I think you struck a chord with me. I don't know, you know, what your um how I guess a large percentage of your audiences when you share this message likely really grasp onto that. And I know that I am as well because I'm looking into that for myself right now of how do you take knowledge or data in the case of of what we're talking about? How do you take this really concrete thing and turn it into a product. How do you productize knowledge? How do you productize information and reporting? And and that's not the angle I'm coming from it, but but I'm I'm interested in the answer to that in the sense of you know talking about you don't know what it's going to look like when you start. You're experimenting and and kind of just trial and error. When you say that, are you experimenting with what data you're trying to get across, what point you're trying to get across, or are we talking about images and colors and all of those kind of semiotic cues that could prime somebody's mind to receive a message. I'm, I'm talking about the images, the colors, the cues. I'm talking about the flow of the story itself on the page. Mm -hmm. So you know what you're so going to say, way, but not how. Right. Exactly. I know what I'm going to say, not necessarily how I'm going to say it or how I'm going to visually present it when I start. Mm -hmm. And I always know what I'm going to say because that's what comes out of the data. Mm. I, you know, I, I look at what the data tells me and the story that it's delivering to me is the story I'm going to deliver to the audience. I'm not going to cherry pick it. I'm not going to change it in any way. I'm not going to remove something or add something. I'm going to tell the audience exactly what the story is telling me, whether it's good, bad or neutral. Yeah. yeah it's just a matter of how do I actually deliver it? And I, part of my process is, and this, this may sound a little strange to people, but anybody that's familiar with uh, the concept of the hero's journey. I, I look at data storytelling in much the same way. You know, I was going to ask you the about Joseph Campbell, hero. and if you do that, if you follow sort of the the hero schema of of that hero's journey. In, in some ways, I do. You know, not every step of Campbell's hero's journey is appropriate for this type of storytelling, but there certainly are beats that it helps you follow. And the the hero of the story is the data. So. You've got to learn how to take that hero through its journey to ultimately reach the conclusion of being used to make better decisions. Now, that's something – and I'm just going to interject here. That's something that I think is really hard for an analytical person to grasp without getting an example of it. 
um, or seeing it? Do you, do you have an example kind of off the top of your head readily available of how you've done that in the past to to sort of talking about creative pursuits to help paint a picture of what that means? I need I'd actually need to think about what what I could do in an audio format to get that across. I think I have a couple of other questions that'll help us get there though. So I'm not going to put a lot of pressure on you on that side. And uh, I say that, but I want to immediately backtrack to something I'm known for doing a a very, it's, it's so simple. uh, This question that I'm going to ask that it's grandiose. It's so straightforward that it's absolutely preposterous. Uh, that I would ask, Garrett, what is story? What What is this thing we're talking about? I mean, I, I teach digital marketing and it is so difficult to get students to contemplate, you know, storytelling through advertising or through social media channels. And I love to hear people's different interpretations of what this means. So I'll ask you just, what is story? You know, I actually start... Uh, a presentation that I do about data storytelling with that very question. I ask the audience, what is story? And why is story such an important, intrinsic, interwoven piece of the human experience? And it always has been. And I think the answer is, is like you just said, the answer is both simple and complex at the same time. The, the simple answer is that stories help us understand concepts. Stories help us understand things that we might have a hard time wrapping our head around. We relate to stories better than we relate to just flat, cold fact. We connect with it when it's wrapped around a story or wrapped inside a story as opposed to just being given the information. And I think that's something that everybody relates to. If they really think about it, you know, everybody likes stories. Everybody connects with stories, whether they're fiction, nonfiction, the news, talking to a friend or a spouse. We all tell stories and we all receive stories in one way or another. And that's because we as a species have evolved societally and our brains have evolved physically to accept information and process information in that way. So story is really a fundamental part of our being. It's how we understand the universe. So in a way we can just treat that part as, you know, a priori knowledge. It's just fundamental and an inherent property of human nature. Right. You don't have to. Do you find that you have to prime your audience to be ready for a story or is what I'm hearing sort of the opposite of that, that everybody's already ready for a story and not to extrapolate too much, but they may welcome it when you're going into a meeting or something and expecting a bunch of dry, um, arguably cold fact. Um, I, I guess if I'm understanding correctly, you don't you don't see any challenge in getting people ready to. Go no. on a journey with you. I have in my in my years of doing this and following this type of pathway, I have never once had someone tell me that listening to the story of the data was boring the way I present it. Yeah. Because I don't just present it 
as a bunch of raw, cold statistics. Now, how does that take shape? For instance, if we're talking about something like, you know, um, click-through rates for an advertisement, right? If, if you and I are, are in business for somebody and, and we're over in uh, advertising and, and reporting and they want to know what's the effectiveness of our ad, what way can we take something so basic and straightforward as that when, you know, analytical minds would just want to go uh, X percent? What could we do there to really engage someone who may not be as analytically minded as we are or who is, but is, quite frankly, wearing thin of nothing but numbers? Well, okay. if we're talking about click through rates for an ad, there's a lot that we can look at there beyond how many people actually click on the ad and then how many people actually purchase the product that the ad leads to. Those are the basic statistics. So what's your rate through click through? What's your purchase rate after click through? Pretty simple, straightforward. That's where somebody might end when looking with click-through right. rates. Most people, How, they're, they're done there. Right. However, when we get click-throughs, if we're using the right tools, uh, even something like Google Analytics, then we're going to be able to see where those clicks came from. We're going to hopefully be able to have other information on our people that have clicked through and purchased. So there's a story there. We start to understand where our ads are having the most effectiveness geographically, where our ads are having the most effectiveness uh, demographically. And that begins to allow us to paint a profile of our buyer. And as soon as you're able to start to paint a profile of the buyer, you begin to understand the buyer's story because you need to start looking at other types of data on those buyers. You know, what type of things do they interact with outside of our product? Uh, where else do they tend to shop? What if, if they're all from Central Florida, why are they all from Central Florida? What about, what about our product is connecting with people in Central Florida as opposed to connecting with people in Alaska? Mm -hmm. So there's a story around all of that. It's a lot more than just how many people clicked it and how many people bought it. And as soon as you're able to start to dig in and identify that story and think outside the box of the statistics, then you start to better understand your customer. And as soon as you better understand your customer, you better understand their story. And that means that you can better design your product to serve them in a way that is most meaningful to them so they continue to engage with your company. That is, that's such a wonderful, you know, full circle completion of you know, what in marketing and in, even in product design, we, we look at the buyer persona or the user story. And when we take that persona so many times, and, and again, my perspective in the education side, where we both work at the same university, my perspective from the education side is working with a lot of students who are just encountering these, these topics for the first time. Or if I'm out in a consulting um, sort of advisory type role, I'm maybe adding, there's still that education component is what I'm getting at. And so when we talk about buyer personas and we talk about who this customer is, who the person is and the, their story, a lot of times that's just viewed as being predictive. You know, I'm predicting who's going to come buy this so that I can know where I need to market it, where I need to advertise it, what words I need to use. And that's all fine and well. I advocate for that. But what you just presented is the other half of the circle of saying, okay, now that we've done that, who is the person that's actually there? Does it match the persona? If so, mm -hmm. why? If not, why not? 
And what are their behaviors as a result of going through our funnels, you know, our sales funnels and, and uh, our buying process? What's the result of that? And we're not just isolating this fictitious person at one part of the process. We're, we're looking at fictitious and real people and right. the entire relationship that they have with us. And I think that speaks to a couple of things. First of all, the, the relationship model of business, as I just alluded to. But integrating everything from product design to marketing to pricing, that's been that's been a real big goal of business for a long time, and it's hard to do. So thank you for that. That's a big – I think that's a big revelation. Cool. Oh, glad I could provide it. <laughs> yeah. and <laughs> Thank I, you for asking the question that led to it. No, I, I hope uh, that people can you, take that and, and build on it. You actually, you actually said something in there that I, I want to bring up that's really important when it comes to data of any kind. You, you said behavior. And behaviors stem from human beings. And we have to remember that anytime we deal with data, humans are involved. So that means we have to consider their behaviors. We have to consider the behaviors that led them to provide us with the data they have provided. And we have to consider the behaviors that they are going to take upon either viewing that data or interacting with something that has been informed by that data. So you can't just look at data in a vacuum. You have to pay attention to the environment that it exists in. You have to pay attention to the environment that it came from and to not only the things that were happening around the time period whenever the data was collected, like world events or news or weather or whatever. You also have to pay attention to that human element, what behaviors drove people to provide you with that data. And if you start to understand that, that's when you really start to get a good picture of what's going on. In many ways, when you begin working with this, if you're doing it right, you have to understand not only the mathematics side of it and the analysis side of it, you've really got to start to understand the human side of it and the psychology of it. Because there's definitely a psychology to data and a psychology to how data is used. Absolutely. And that can be used for good or it can be used for bad. You know, that makes me think that I had the um, privilege of sitting through one of your seminars on this recently. And what you were just saying there made me think of a story that you told about uh, New Coke. And back in the 80s, how all of the data, you said, uh, right, Is that uh, did I understand it correctly, that all of the data supported making the change and it was the human element that was, was forgotten. Yeah. That was the example you gave there. Um, how does that type of organizational thinking how does it become so prevalent? Why do we do that to ourselves? Why did Coke do that to themselves in the 80s? Why are we still doing it now, you know, 30 some odd years later? I think it depends on it depends on the situation. Mm. You know, uh, the situation with New Coke, I, I would imagine just about anybody listening to your podcast is probably familiar with New Coke. Anybody in business really is. Um, the situation with New Coke in the 80s was a matter of them worrying about the fact that they had lost so much of their market share in such a short period of time. So they kind of panicked a little bit. Yeah. At least that's how I've always taken it whenever I've studied it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this, the sweeter and, alternative is taking our market share. Right. In the case of situations like we've had in the last few years, uh, specifically let's, let's look at, you know, a car company, a German car company. I won't name it, but I think, I think everybody will start to get where I'm going here. There was, 
a, a German car company that cherry picked their data and intentionally left out information that uh, ultimately ended up resulting in deaths. Yeah. Why did they do that? They did it because if they hadn't done it, it would have meant they would have had to pull products and they would have had to spend immense amounts of money to fix a mistake that they made. Mm-hmm. So they did it for they did it for wrong reasons. But it's it's still uh, the same thing, right? I, I absolutely get where you're at. They they did it because they overlooked the human element. Yeah. And it well, cost them in the long they run. They intentionally overlooked the human element. Whereas I think the situation with Coca-Cola is that they didn't intentionally overlook the human element. They were in a stress situation. So back to psychology. And in stress situations, we always forget pieces of information or important things. That's Same goes for companies. Well, I mean, that's the heavy hitting topic right there because right now, I mean, I'm not going to try to pontificate or get up on a soapbox, but right now we are really seeing a lot of businesses that as we move towards a more, you know, socially responsible environment, we see a lot of businesses that are digging in with uh, just willfully choosing to ignore the human element and um, treating humans still as this consumer mentality of they're just a cog in the wheel of consumption. And yeah. I, I just I anything to do to challenge that I love hearing and I think you just created a, a perfect case for challenging it of saying you can't you can't will it to go away. It's there and it will impact your sales and it will impact your bottom line. Even if you do get a short term gain from it, um, you mentioned German car company, uh, you're going to pay a lot more in the long run once it yeah. all comes to light. That's very true. And it goes way beyond, way beyond monetary payment. You know, it goes into social payment, and it goes into uh, your trust that you have with your consumers being eroded away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's and, that's livelihoods of you know everybody from your executives to your frontline assembly and everyone in between. Right. And ooh, okay, so that's a different topic. Now, up to this point. Uh, I've taken I've taken the lead on this and really moved the conversation towards the people who are already analytical and want to learn how to tell story. And, you know, we've talked about things like thinking about infographics or videos or more um, more visual presentations. Um, you even referenced, you know, audio storytelling, like the use of a podcast. Um, that's something mm-hmm. I know that you're exploring at our university and doing the the, um, you know, exploring and, and presenting messages through audio. But what about the people who are on the other side? They they really gravitate towards the audiovisual or the creative side, but aren't quite sure what parts of data to put into that story. Uh, wh- what would you say to those folks? Where would you start them? Well, that, that's a really good question. And the environment that you and I work in is an environment where I would say probably 90% of our coworkers are high, high level creatives. Yeah, definitely. And are not necessarily <laughs> in, a good in many cases analytical. And that's, that's not a bad thing at all. It's great. In fact, uh, yeah, it's different uh, it makes, from the way we think, but it's, it's refreshing. Yeah. So that means that whenever I, whenever I do my data storytelling presentation, the most of the people I'm talking to are creatives. And I, can, I, I feel like I can connect with them, just like I can connect with the analytical side. Is the, my brain's always worked on both sides. Mm-hmm. 
And what I do with them is I, I start out bringing them in with the story, which they're going to understand. And then I, I tell them stories like the new Coke story or the German car company story, or, uh, you know, about online social media site stories, things along those lines. And I will then introduce them to data successes, stories of data successes. And as I do that, I begin to weave in terminology that helps them better understand uh, what we're going to be talking about in the form of data. And I introduce them to some basic statistics concepts. And then from there, uh, it's really just a matter of sticking with the data concepts of you know, what type of, what type of things do you want to look at? Like correlations and you want to look at your mean, your median, your mode, really basic, basic stuff. Cause I'm, I'm always trying to keep in mind that I'm dealing with people who may not necessarily like math. Right. So I teach them, I teach them really basic things that they can look at to understand the story. And I'll give them examples. Like when I'm basic statistic concepts, like mean, median, and mode, I'll go through the idea of, uh, why you want to look at the median when you're dealing with real estate prices as opposed to mo- the mean. And people get that. Right. So it's all about taking taking the statistics and analytical concepts and relating it back to the creative people with a story that they're going to latch onto and start to understand. And as soon as they do that, the creative portions of their brain start to kick in. It connects with what I'm saying. And they begin to, they really begin to get where we're going on the mathematics side. And I've had people tell me afterwards that even though they don't feel like they can do this themselves now, they understand it now because of the fact that it was related to them in a creative way or a story way. Yeah, I, you know, I love what you just said. And you actually did that in the the session I said I was was privileged to be able to attend. The mean, median, and mode conversation, I can't stress it enough. It's not just for... Uh, maybe this is even feedback for you. It's not just for the creatives. I think the analytical people um, or the people who have both oh, yeah. skill sets, we forget about that from time to time. And, you know, I think when you add storytelling in, it makes a lot of sense. You were just talking about real estate prices. Well, let's say uh, the average house price is 500 some odd thousand dollars. But then you use story to say, you know, uh, John comes in and buys a house for a hundred thousand dollars. Jill comes in and buys a house for a million dollars. Bing. Now you've got an average of over $500,000. Right. That part of the storytelling, I think, is the core fundamental expression of your message, isn't it? That that these two things are truly tied together and one – am I understanding correctly if I say one can't exist properly without the other? Absolutely. The You have to have both sides of the equation. You've got to have the quantitative data. You've got to have the qualitative data whenever you're dealing with data science and big data. With one without the other is a it, – it's an incomplete puzzle. And just like with quantitative and qualitative having to go hand in hand with each other to be used properly, the art and the science, the creative and the analytic have to go hand in hand to be used properly in this situation. Because if you only take the approach of one side – you're going to miss something really, really important. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So um, I did mention earlier that we were going to not keep this short, but we're going to keep it at a, at a measured pace today because of some pre-existing schedules um, that you and I are both working through. But I want to, as we start moving towards the conclusion of this episode, I really want to just open the floor to you and anything that you find over and over that you're trying to put as your central message. What is it that you find you you just truly want people to know or you find yourself answering in the Q&A sessions after your presentations? What type of recurring themes um, are inherent in your, your work? Well, the, the theme that recurs most often after I after I talk about things like this, either on an individual level or in my presentations, is how do I do it? You know, how do I actually do this now? I understand where you're coming from. How do I actually do it? Well, for, for people that are looking for a place to start, uh, you, you really just want to uh, dive in and dive into your data that you have and start looking at it with fresh eyes from a very neutral perspective. That's where you start. Now describe that neutral perspective. What, what does that mean? Well, there are, there, there are enough cognitive biases that you and I could have a show about them that would last <laughs> well over a year or more right. if we did an episode a week. There's over 40 different types of cognitive biases or mental biases. So uh, one of the things that we deal with on a regular basis, all of us deal with this, is confirmation bias. And simply put, that's basically when we only believe the facts that we have personal knowledge of. We disregard all the rest of it in favor of something that jives with our belief system. And we see this all the time. We see it in politics. We see it in the media. We see it in the news on a regular basis. I mean, you see, you see it everywhere. It is one of the most deadly things you can do when you start analyzing your data. All of us suffer from confirmation biases. If you go into exploring your data Believing you are going to find something in there, I guarantee you, you will find it, <laughs> even if it's not there. Right, right. So that's what I mean about being neutral. You have to approach your data analysis from a completely neutral perspective. You have to be a scientist, and you have to understand that you may or may not find something worthwhile in it. You may find something good. You may find something bad. You're there to actually uncover the story. Yep. I, I love that because then you can process the good, the bad, and the ugly after the fact, but discover the truth first, right? Yes, exactly. And, you know, that actually leads me to a, one, of my, one of my favorite quotes, and I really wish I knew who actually said this originally, but I don't. So I'm just going to use it. Uh, I got it from one of my statistics instructors. In fact, one of my favorite ins instructors I've ever had. Uh, you're up there, Chase. Don't worry. Um, and uh, he he said once that uh, most people use data and statistics like a drunk person uses a lamppost for support instead of illumination. I like that. And uh, yeah, me too. That's that's really the core of everything it, that has driven me to take this path of data storytelling as my area of focus. And I love how much that itself is storytelling. 
Well, well, Garrett, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I do want to make sure that any last word is yours, and then we'll head out from here. And if anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out to me, feedback at multinewmedia.com, and I can relay them to Garrett, and uh, we can follow up if necessary. But Garrett, I, I want to make sure the last word is yours. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me. I enjoy our conversations both on the air and off the air every time we get a chance to get together. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I hope this helps somebody. I hope it helps enlighten them a little bit or drive them towards exploring the concept of data storytelling themselves. And uh, feel free to publish my email address uh, with this if you'd like, as I am more than happy to answer any questions people might have and help them if they need help driving them towards where they need to be to get the best story out of their data. And uh, as for the last word, let's go with Wombat. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, take care.